This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Loving Father, thank you so much for the Sabbath, for the opportunity to draw close to you because you have drawn close to us, that you've set aside this holy time, this special day, week by week, where we can meet with you, we can come into your presence, sit at your feet, learn from you, from your word, taught by your Holy Spirit. And that's our prayer this afternoon, that you would bless us with your presence as we open your word, that you would make it clear to each one of our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I couldn't actually have asked for a better introduction to what I'm going to share with you this afternoon than the sermon this morning. How many heard the sermon this morning? Everybody raised their hand. Yeah. Um, I had mentioned the idea of, you know, of a gospel in, previous, uh, in the previous uh, seminar, number five, where different views of the gospel among Seventh-day Adventists and I, I like the way it was put there, that, um, that the gospel that some would like to push on us is an incomplete gospel. It's not the total package that we know about as Seventh-day Adventists. We have a great privilege knowing, uh, as we do, about the heavenly sanctuary and Jesus' ministry there. And not only that, but the Bible prophecies of Daniel and Revelation that uh, bring them together so beautifully and interconnect Daniel, Hebrews, Revelation, and many other parts of Scripture. We don't have anything to apologize for. The gospel is God's work of atonement, Christ's work of atonement. And the English word, of course, as you know, comes from, uh, it's kind of built together from the, uh, or a coined word that means at one moment. It's God bringing us back to himself establishing, reestablishing the connection. We've talked about it in previous seminars as the ladder stretching from earth to heaven and Jesus uh, pioneering a pathway for us into the heavenly sanctuary, into God's presence, especially now since 1844 into the most holy place. And we will talk and focus on that in particular and the significance of the time in which we live this day of atonement time here um, this afternoon. I liked, again, the three steps that were mentioned this morning uh, of the gospel. You've got sacrifice, um, the cross, outer court. You have the uh, application of the blood. Of course, sometimes the blood was poured beneath the altar, often also brought into the holy place, but it was applied either to the horns of the altar burnt offering or, uh, uh, sorry, poured beneath the uh, altar burnt offering or applied to the horns of the altar of incense. And, and uh, so there was application of the blood in the holy place and the cleansing of the sanctuary, of course, beginning in the most holy place, but affecting the whole sanctuary, cleansing everything from, from inside out, which is a lesson for us, isn't it, as to how God wants to cleanse us from the inside out. Amen? Not from the outside in. Sometimes we get it backwards and we try to cleanse ourselves uh, the wrong way. And we can't cleanse ourselves, really. Only God can do it. And he only does it one way. And that's the way it's illustrated in the sanctuary so beautifully. From the inside out. Beginning in the most holy place where the heart, you know, and, and affecting everything we think and everything we do. So let's look at um, these three steps just briefly in Hebrews. Hebrews 9.15 
We have uh, the sacrifice as mentioned. We, we spoke about Hebrews 9, first uh, nine verses or so um, last time, so I won't review that. But uh, Hebrews 9.15, For this cause he, Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament or covenant, they which are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions, also under the first covenant, not just for the new covenant, but really for all time. You know, Jesus, you know, the animal sacrifices were a symbol. They were a shadow, according to the book of Hebrews. Nothing, the animal blood could not take away sins. Only Jesus' blood could do that, offered once for all. And so those sins were, were not really redeemed until the Redeemer came and offered. That's why it was at the risk of eternal loss that Jesus came. Only with his death were the sins of all uh, previous eras uh, redeemed and paid for. And, of course, our sins as well. Secondly, um, second step, the application of the blood, verse 22. Almost all things are by the law purged or cleansed with blood, purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness without shedding of blood. So the application of the blood, you had two essential parts to the atonement. You have the the sacrifice and the application of the blood. And without that, there was no forgiveness of sins. And then finally, um, third step, most holy place, verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So it was necessary for the copies, that is the earthly sanctuary uh, places, um, things to be purified with these, that is, animal sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Does heaven need cleansing? Yeah. It's an interesting idea, huh? Heaven needs cleansing. It was also a surprise to me when, as an atheist, as I mentioned, I read the Great Controversy and started studying Revelation, realized that there was war, that the war, the first war that ever began in the universe was in heaven. I wouldn't have thought of that. But there it was, right in the Bible, war in heaven. And uh, for that reason, there are things that need to be settled in heaven as well as on earth. As Paul says, we are a spectacle, spectacle to the universe and to angels, to men. And the word there is cosmos in Greek, universe. Uh, uh, so um, we need to recognize that the controversy and, and the, the, the battle between good and evil is bigger than, than we are. It's, it's, it's bigger issues involved. Now, of course, we're an important part of it. But, but bigger issues are involved. And, and so let's turn to Hebrews chapter 6, where let's go back a little bit. We didn't really cover this verse. Uh, but I think it's important in this connection to mention. He says, therefore, and of course it's uh, bringing up all that has been said already about Jesus and his work as fully God and fully human, as the Redeemer, um, who is the only one 
who can actually save us. And uh, he can save us only because he lives forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, chapter 5, and that he learned obedience, verse 8 of chapter 5, by the things which he suffered and being made perfect, became the author of eternal salvation to all them who obey him, and so on. So now, therefore, verse 6, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, King James says, uh, the principles of the doctrine of Christ, Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Not laying again the foundation. Anyone who's built a house, how many times do you lay a foundation? Once, right? Hopefully only once. Actually, there was a building that I was was involved with later after the foundation had been laid. And unfortunately, it was not laid right. And guess what? Had to be taken out and poured back again. Sometimes the Christian life is like that. You know, if we lay the foundation not right, we have to kind of undo things and relay things. But if that's set down correctly, you build from that foundation. You don't lay it again and again and again. That's not, that's not how God works. The, the, once the foundation is laid, then the house is built. And as it says in Hebrews chapter 3, who is the house? Covered that in, in uh, seminar number two. Whose house are we? Thank you. Whose house are we if we hold the, our confession steadfast and sure? Um, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoice in the hope firm unto the end? Chapter 3, verse 6. So, So we are that house. God is building his temple, his people. And uh, he wants us to move forward, look upward. That's what we talked about last time. That the, the, we don't, we're not to look backward. Jesus is not there. He's not, he's not on the cross anymore. As sometimes you might see him carried and even paraded, as I've seen through the streets, you know, uh, paraded, hanging there on the cross as if he's still there. He's not there anymore. It's like when the women came to the tomb and they said, the angels said to them, he is not here. You know, don't look for him where he is not. He is risen and now he is ascended and he is at, in, at God's right hand, the presence of God. Amen. So, um, let us remember that the foundation is important, it's essential, it's really the most important part of the building. Without the foundation, the building is not strong, it's not secure, it's not going to last. The foundation is what keeps it solid and firm, so we can never get rid of the foundation, but we can't just remain with the foundation. It is uh, something to build on. God is building his people into a holy, uh, holy temple to restore his image in humanity so that we can reflect that image to the world. That's the goal. The foundation is essential, but it's only just the beginning. And what a wonderful beginning it is. And then in Hebrews 8, 6, we're reminded about Jesus that he has obtained a more excellent ministry a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. 
more excellent, better covenant, better promises. Why would we ever want to go back? Why would we ever want to look back? There's something much better that God has in store for us. Of course, Hebrews 11 talks about that at the end, and we'll get to that in a little while. Hebrews chapter 10 re, uh, or underscores and emphasizes this point. Verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged or cleansed should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. So what, as we mentioned actually last time, Hebrews is very clear. Paul says that it's not just the daily service, the, the service through the year that was inferior. The Day of Atonement was inferior, too, to Christ's ministry. It's a more excellent ministry than the whole, the whole of the year. Daily, yearly, sacrifices, everything. His is better. And it especially emphasizes here the Day of Atonement, which they offered year after year, year after year. There was a remembrance, it says, every year of sins. Why? Because they were never really cleansed. Why? Because the blood of animals and goats and calves could not do that. Only the blood of Jesus could do that. And so these were shadows, symbols. We have the reality. We can enjoy the light of the cross, looking forward and upward. Let's, let's move on to uh, the significance of this. Notice, this is from the Great Controversy. Page uh, 488 and 489. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. All need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of their great high priest. Have you ever heard people say, in fact, I think I heard it just not too long ago, you know, mention 1844 as if, you know, it's something you can never understand. Have you heard that? All need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of their great, great high priest. Otherwise, it will be what? Impossible for them to exercise the faith, which is essential when? At this time. Or to... Occupy the position which God designs them to fill. Essential for us to understand at this time. All who have received the light upon these subjects are to bear testimony of the great truths which God has committed to them. So not only are we to understand them, but what? We're to share them. We're to testify. We're to tell people about it. And, of course, that's the best way to understand, isn't it? You know, if, if you can't tell and explain it to someone else, probably you don't understand it very well, right? Um, so this, this fits together, fits together well. All who have received light upon these subjects are to bear testimony of the great truths which God has committed to them. The sanctuary in heaven is the very 
center of Christ's work in behalf of men. It concerns every soul living upon the earth. It opens to view the plan of redemption, bringing us down to the very close of time and revealing the triumphant issue of the contest between righteousness and sin. It is of the utmost importance that all should thoroughly investigate these subjects and be able to give an answer to everyone that asketh them, a reason of the hope that is in them. Quotation from 1 Peter, right? What a privilege we have. What great light we have been given. Notice the next paragraph. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. By his death, he began that work which after his resurrection he ascended to complete in heaven. We must by faith enter within the veil whither the forerunner is for us entered. Hebrews 6.20 There the light from the cross of Calvary is reflected. Where? Where's there? Where? The sanctuary in heaven. Why? Because that's where Jesus is. The light of the cross of Calvary is shining from Jesus himself. We don't need to look back to the cross. We need to look upward and, and at Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finish of our faith. This is where Calvary is focused in the person of Jesus himself. There, the light from the cross of Calvary is reflected. There, we may gain a clear insight into the mysteries of redemption. The salvation of man is accomplished at an infinite expense to heaven. The sacrifice made is equal to the broadest demands of the broken law of God. Jesus has opened the way to the Father's throne. And through his mediation, the sincere desire of all who come to him in faith may be presented before God. He's opened the way. This is the message of Hebrews. He's opened up the way. And uh, it already begins with Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That, that word captain is a very interesting word in Greek. Archegos. Uh, you might... Uh, Recognize the word arch or arch, like archangel, uh, archangel. Um, archegos, it means the pioneer, the one who blazes the trail ahead of someone. He is the pioneer of our salvation. He is the one that has made it possible. At every, every one of these three stages, Jesus has gone through and entered for us. And now he is in the final stage. He's in the most holy place during the Day of Atonement ministry. And so we can enter into there. It's better than in the Day of Atonement in the earthly sanctuary because who could go there? Only the high priest. Only. And when? Only once a year. Only on the Day of Atonement. Jesus has opened the way for us now every one of us, to enter in with him by faith. So, Hebrews 12, 
is the other place. This is word archegos is used twice in Hebrews. This is the second place it's used. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to whom? Jesus, the pioneer, Archegos, and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. How marvelous that is. Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. It's, you know, Jesus isn't the only one, actually. Uh, we don't have to only suppose that there's only been one person that has been victorious. Now, we've all sinned except for Jesus, okay? He's the only one who has uh, lived without sin. But there are many who have been victorious over sin. And there is a whole chapter of Hebrews devoted to that. So great a cloud of witnesses, it says. And that cloud of witnesses, we don't have much time to talk about them, but they richly repay study and thought. And so we'll go really briefly through this chapter 11, um, beginning with Abel. All of them, of course, it begins how? By faith. It's the only way. By faith. Faith is always first and last and at all times. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it, he being dead, still speaks. He still speaks. His life still witnesses, testifies to the fact that the Lamb is the only way of salvation through faith in him, not through our fruit of our own works. Actually, those works are, according to Hebrews, dead, because we are dead in trespasses and sins. So any works that we do without Christ living in us are dead works. Enoch Verses 5 and 6. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. And was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony. That he pleased God. And verse 6. Very important lesson here. Without faith it is impossible to please him. Why? For he that comes to God must believe that he is that he exists, I, I didn't believe that for a long time. I was an atheist in high school. It took me some time to recognize that God exists. Now, once I started opening my mind to the possibility, I saw evidence all around me, and scripture was very clear. But we must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Enoch. Do you want to be like Enoch? Are you looking forward to translation, to being with Jesus? You know, as long as we focus on him, it doesn't matter what comes. Uh, he is with us. He, are, as we focus on Jesus, he will lead us every step of the way. 
until it's just uh, a natural thing for, to step from here to heaven. It, is, it would be a very small step when we spend time with Jesus. Noah, verse 7, by faith, Noah, warned of God of things not seen, as yet moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world. He condemned the world. How? Simply by choosing the way of faith, building an ark, believing God in his word. No real scientific evidence. There wasn't. People thought he had lost his mind. He was a fool for God. Preparing an ark for the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Abraham, verse 8, called to go to a place he didn't even know. Where are you going, Abraham? There. Where? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> God's going to show me. Okay. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, stranger in a strange land, dwelling in tabernacles and tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why? Because he looked beyond that. He looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And ladies are not left out here. Hebrews 11 mentions Sarah. Through faith, also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now that's not the way I remember this story. I don't actually remember either Abraham or Sarah being really that confident. Well, maybe they were at first, but as the years and years went by. But, you know, the New Testament doesn't mention that. God has forgotten these things. And so he's not going to inspire his prophets to remember these things. It's gone from the record. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful truth. That what, God what God forgets, we can't remember. You know, there's coming a time, beautiful time. One of the most powerful things about the time of trouble is that she says that when the sins are blotted out, they are born away into a land of forgetfulness. And that even those who are living in the time of trouble, they, they, will, see, they will feel unworthy, they will try to re recall, but they can't bring them to mind. They know they've done little good, but they can't bring to mind. Verse 22, Joseph. By faith, Joseph, when he died... When, as he was dying, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel, gave commandment concerning his bones. He lived in Egypt. He died in Egypt. But he wasn't going to stay in Egypt. And his mind and his heart were in the promised land. Where is our heart? Where are our thoughts? What wonderful testimonies these are. Moses, by faith, Moses, verse 23, when he was born, hid three months of his parents, 
Thank God for godly parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt. What a choice, huh? Reproach of Christ, riches of Egypt. Which looks better on the surface? And, you know, even after thousands of years, if you go to Karnak in Egypt and you look at those palaces, they're impressive. You look at the pyramids in Giza, they're impressive. And we can't imagine what they were like as Moses was strolling through those palaces, how tempting that must have been. But he didn't have his eye on those things. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. He had respect to the reward. Verse 29, Israel, the people of Israel, by faith they, doesn't say who they are, but we know who they are. They passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, assigned to do, were drowned. And then, of course, they sang on the other side. Song of Moses. What a beautiful song of victory. And the 144,000 will sing a song like that. Song of Moses and the Lamb. Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. You know, they were camped at Kadesh Barnea. They were, they were the majority was saying, you know, there are giants in the land. The walls are reach up to heaven. What does that sound like? Remind you of any place? Babylon? Trying to build to heaven? Walls reach, of course it was an exaggeration. With God, it was not a problem. When they came and circled around Jericho, those walls came tumbling down. wasn't a problem. The giants, no problem. Verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts, in mountains, in dens, in caves of the earth. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Why? God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Of course, we don't have to put the period here. Because... We also have the great controversy. You know, the, we could look through the chapters of the great controversy and we could see the Waldenses and the uh, Wycliffs and Huss and Jerome, Luther, John Knox. The story continues, right, down through Christian history. What set all of these people apart? What set them apart? Faith, 
Faith, what we talked about earlier, right? Faith, how did we define faith? Being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. I know Hebrews 11 has a different definition than we all know, but I like the one in Romans 4, that Abraham was, being, was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he, not we, he was able also to perform. They believed God. They believed his word. They died for his word. They died for the truth. What are we prepared to die for? What is valuable enough? They stood at all costs for what was true. They did not fear man because they feared and loved God more. So what is this pathway? What does it mean? Hebrews 10, beautiful description. Beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us. By the way, the word holiest there in in Greek is the holy places, hagia, means the sanctuary as a whole. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It sounds the same as what Paul said in in his letter to the Romans, right? He who promised is faithful, being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he is able also to perform. Let us also consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Do you see the day approaching? Do you see the signs around us? They're there. And here is a wonderful step-by-step guidebook. Hold fast the confession without wavering. Without wavering. Consider one another. Encourage one another. Stir up one another with love, good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. What a wonderful, wonderful guidebook it is. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, continues this guidebook. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. When I think about some of the things I've gone through, they don't measure up any, to anything to what Jesus went through. I have been in places where I didn't know where our next meal was coming from. There was no food in the shel- on the shelves in the stores. But Jesus always provided. Amen. And it helped me to love him more. 
You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, to blood, striving against sin. And then a, com a climactic comparison. We, we won't really talk much about it, but you know uh, how this chapter concludes with a beautiful contrast between Mount Sinai with the blackness and darkness and tempest and Mount Zion. Heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable company of angels, those written in heaven, which would you rather choose? Okay, The Sinai with the tables of stone out there, as Paul also describes when he contrasts Old and New Covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. One's administration of death, written and engraved on stones. The other, administration of righteousness, written on the tablets of human hearts. Written by the Spirit. That Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? So, while the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, that's now, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary. What kind of believers? All believers? Penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary. There is to be a special work of purification, of putting away of sin among God's people upon earth. You see, there is a connection that has been established by Jesus. He is the ladder that is still reaching between earth and heaven. Through his people, he lives on earth and he, in his person, is before the throne of God in heaven for us. It's a beautiful picture. And the work that he's doing in heaven, he is doing also here through us on earth. There's a special work of purification. It's his work. It's not our work. It's his work in our hearts of putting away sin among God's people on earth. This work is more clearly presented in the messages of Revelation 14. Next paragraph. When this work shall have been accomplished, what work? Work of purification. The followers of Christ will be, what? Come on, don't be shy. Ready, okay, maybe it's too small a print, okay? Ready, let's, let's hear you say, ready. For his appearing. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then the church which our Lord is coming is to receive to himself will be a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. What a privilege. What a privilege to live at this time. We can see the sweep of history. We can learn from the cloud of witnesses. We can look to Jesus who is standing for us and interceding for us. Can we stand for him? Are we willing to stand for him? Verse 10 of chapter 13. You know, the, the, if you can put yourself back in the time of Paul, when he was writing this, the temple was actually the most glorious it was ever in the mid-60s. They had just finished. The, the work that Herod the Great had started back 
you know, it was already in building for 40 years at the time of Jesus. Well, they were still working on it. And they just had putting the finishing touches on the temple a few years before Rome came and destroyed it. But if you can imagine, you know, you can kind of still see if you go through the western tunnel, the, the tunnel underground along the western wall, see the foundations of the temple, of the, not the temple, but of the foundations of the temple mount, the mount on which the temple was built. Of course, nothing in the temple remains. This is all gone. Not one stone left upon another. But just the, just the uh, retaining wall that Herod had to build to make the kind of glorious temple he had in mind, which the original Temple Mount was not big enough to do. So he built, he made it larger, and he made a large retaining wall. You can still see those Herodian stones, and they looked like they were from yesterday. I mean, they're just, the, the workmanship is, is glorious, beautiful. And those are just the just the, that's just the retaining wall. You know, Josephus describes the temple as a glorious thing. And that's why the disciples said to Jesus, look at these buildings. And if you could imagine what, what kind of attraction that was. And yet, notice what he says, chapter 13, verse 10. We have an altar whereof they, that is, those who have rejected Jesus and the priests who are carrying on the meaningless rituals, which they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, to him, without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. We seek one to come. Here we have no home. Our home is not here. Jesus is not here. Our home is with him. He's prepared a place for us. Do you want to go there? Do you want to be there with him? That is the motivation. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The conclusion is simple. If we look to Jesus and follow his steps, we will be victorious. We will not be led astray. And I love, and I'll close with this statement from the Desire of Ages, page 668 and 671. The Savior's promise is given on condition. If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. He saves men not in sin, but from sin. And those who love him will show their love by obedience. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. It was heart work with Christ. As we saw earlier, he struggled. He suffered. He prayed. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will. Not my will. But thine be done. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims 
so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. That's not humanly possible. I know myself too well. It is a miracle that is described here. When obeying him, but I believe it. God said it, I believe it. When obeying him, we, will, we shall be, but carrying out our own impulses. The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing his service. When we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of, how, what kind of obedience? Continual obedience through an appreciation of the character of Christ. That's the secret. Through communion with God. That is where it's at. Sin will become hateful to us. As Christ lived the law in humanity, so we may do. If we will take hold of the strong for strength. The comforter is called the spirit of truth. His work is to define and maintain the truth. He first dwells in the heart as the spirit of truth, and thus he becomes the comforter. There is comfort and peace in the truth, but no real peace or comfort can be found in falsehood. It is through false theories and traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. Notice that. It is how does Satan gain his power? Through false theories and traditions. Is what we believe important? Is the truth important? If we're deceived, is it dangerous? It is. In fact, Ellen White says, error is always dangerous. It's never harmless. It never sanctifies. It is through false theories and traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. By directing men to false standards, he misshapes the character. Through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit speaks to the mind and impresses truth upon the heart. Thus, he exposes error and expels it. He expels it from the soul. It is by the spirit of truth working through the word of God that Christ subdues his chosen people to himself. Yes, I need to be subdued. We need, we need to be subdued by this book. This is our safeguard. In describing to his disciples the office work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sought to inspire them with the joy and hope that inspired his own heart. He rejoiced because of the abundant help he had provided for his church. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that he could solicit from his Father for the exaltation of his people. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent. And without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. Without this, without the Spirit, the sacrifice of Christ. Why? Because it's the Spirit that applies the blood to the heart. The, it was not just the sacrifice in the sanctuary that did things. The blood had to be applied, not just somewhere in heaven, but to our hearts. It had to make a difference. Without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries. And the submission of men to the satanic captivity was amazing. Still is. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person, the Godhead, 
who would come with, I like this, no modified energy, no manufactured energy, no substitute for the Holy Spirit. He would come in the fullness of divine power. It is the Spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is by the Spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the Spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his Spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil. That just about covers it, doesn't it? He has given his spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. Of the spirit, Jesus said, he shall glorify me. How does he do that? The Savior came to glorify the Father by the demonstration of his love. So the spirit was to glorify Christ by revealing his grace to the world. What a privilege we have of revealing Christ to others, of being his hands, his feet, his love. The very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. Do you want that privilege following Jesus all the way? All the way, my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? What a wonderful, wonderful Savior we have. Well, maybe there is a question or two. You mentioned in Hebrews chapter 10 that Yes. But uh, I thought, based on the next verse, and then the verses at the end of the chapter, that that could in fact be the day of atonement. Well, the day throughout the Old Testament is a ref or the day of the Lord is, you know, looking to the coming of of the Lord. And yes, it could include judgment. Um, I suppose. In a sense, uh, I wouldn't want to necessarily exclude the Day of Atonement because it's a, judgment is a process. There is a judgment that takes place now in heaven. This is the investigative judgment. It's really for the angels and for the universe. We are, we are only there by faith. Then there's when Jesus comes, there will be people resurrected to see him. And not only those who love his appearing, those also who pierced him. And the most, uh, those who, who were the most strenuous opposers of him, they will be resurrected to see him in his glory. So there was, there's a, a rewards given. He, gives, he will give every man according as his work shall be. And then, of course, the millennial judgment with regard to uh, 
I think there will be some, some things to sort out. I know Paul and Stephen might have a, a little discussion. You know, Stephen, when he gave his life for Jesus, Paul was there uh, guarding uh, the clothes. Of <laughs> uh, you know, Stephen, that was his last image of, of Paul. And then when he sees him in heaven, I think there will be some, some, some discussion there. What, what happened? I don't think there will be any animosity, but a very curious conversation. <laughs> and that will be repeated millions and millions of times. Then we have, of course, the executive judgment. So, you know, the day, the day is, is a little bit elastic. We're looking forward to the, day, the new earth, too. The, the, real, the real possession of the inheritance that God had in mind. There's a question here. Oh, it's a huge and important question, yeah. Because, um, you know, really only the one who saves us is Jesus. Every step of the way. Sacrifice, intercession, cleansing, and judgment. It's, it's Jesus who does it. He is the high priest. And, and so the work of the high priest in the earthly sanctuary and in the temple is only like a... a a weak, shadowy representation of the work that Jesus does. It was only symbolic. But what Jesus does is real. He, he is the real sacrifice, the real intercessor. And um, that, is, that affects us now. His intercession, you know, it's an interesting study. I, I struggled, you know, what to leave in and what to leave out. There's so much we can learn about his intercessory work for us. It's, it is as much here on earth as it is there before the Father in heaven, his work. And uh, we, we must never forget that. It, it has a vital connection with us. That's all the time we have, but thank you so much for your patience. Let's uh, just conclude with prayer. Loving Father, thank you for the beautiful beautiful picture of Jesus that the book of Hebrews presents to us. And Lord, we want by faith to follow him day by day, step by step, until he comes. May that be our experience. And now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.